I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special Royal Automobile Club talk show highlights recording. In March last year, we teamed up with the club to produce a series of talk shows, and one of the driving forces behind them was the club's late motoring secretary, Peter Fubister. Peter would always come and say hello before the recording started, wearing his usual cheeky grin and ready to chat about anything from the state of play in Formula One to that day's guest. We started with Ross Braun and Nick Fry talking about the demise of Honda and the birth of Braun GP in 2008. From then, we went on to talk to John McGuinness, Sir Sterling Moss, Alistair Cordwell, Damon Hill, Stuart Turner, Pat Simmons, and Dick Bennett. What follows is a highlight show of all the best bits from those recordings. There'll be plenty more to come, but they will not be the same without Peter, who tragically passed away in November last year. Peter, these are dedicated to you. Thank you so much, and rest in peace. Over the, over the run of the next seven races, you won six of them, um, Vettel taking one win. Um, the, uh, there was then sort of a bit of different form, which we'll come to, but could you, but could you believe what was going on? I mean, you know, even when you look at some of the most successful years with Michael at Ferrari and you know, the number of races he won and looking at Hamilton at the moment, I mean, that's not even with the, sort of the, the previous four months they'd had. I mean, Ross, you had so much experience of winning races and winning championships. I guess it was just business as usual once you got into it, or was it not? Was it, did you just have to keep pinching yourself that this was... Well, I think it was pretty special because of the circumstances led up to it. I mean, the, the sort of uh, extreme of emotions. It was, it was a very special period. Um, I think, you know, you win races because you've done a good job and perhaps other people have done a bad job, and that was a year where, quite frankly, a number of key teams, Ferrari, McLaren... Um, they got it wrong, you know. They they didn't um, they didn't get on top of the new regulations as quickly as uh, or as well as they should have done, and so they all took you know half a year to get themselves sorted out, and so there was just this perfect storm in that we had a, a very good car, we got on top of the regulations, we've seen the interpretation that was good for us, we had a team that was buzzing because everyone had had really worked so hard and uh, so committed. Um, two drivers who couldn't believe their luck, uh, and they were really driving very well. So, I mean, it, it was a perfect storm in our favour. Um, everyone else seemed to be off balance. We were on top of the job. And, um, yeah, it was a pretty special first half of the year. And... Uh, um, it's just this extreme ex- extremity of emotions that, that, as Nick said, we went from November, close the, you know, turn the lights off as you walk out the door, to, to um, you know, March time, April, 
beginning of the season winning races. So it's very, very special. Um, I'm going to just move on to another couple of photos here. Um, the Belgian Grand Prix, this I think in between uh, Rubens' two wins that year, um, the second half of the year was much tougher. The reason why I've pulled these out is um, obviously Rubens' car on the left uh, with fire extinguishers on it in the pit lane and um, the McLaren mechanics helping again. Um, and then Jensen out after a crash. I think it was very early in the Grand Prix, wasn't it? Was it first lap? If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, how was there a dip in form or was it other teams catching up? Was it Jensen stumbling a bit with the pressure of the World Championship? What, what can sort of explain the second half of the year? Was it lack of development or...? I think you said it all actually. I mean, there was lack of development because we didn't have the funding. And uh, so, you know, there was some modest work going on, but there certainly wasn't the funding to, to really um, uh, develop the car properly. Um, I think you get you, you know you get these little blips anyway, uh, and I'd been fortunate in having experience before. Just knew we kept our head down and kept everyone focused, made sure that uh, people didn't get too nervous about what was going on. Then we could we could succeed for sure. Jensen, I think, felt the pressure in the middle of the year. It was his championship to lose. And and he had a few events, a few races that were pretty lackluster. He had uh, a crash, but you know you know they're going to come. It's very rare, even in great years, that you have you know 15, 16, 17 races that all run perfectly. I know I've, there have been occasions, but it's pretty rare. You know, normally you've got to be prepared. And I think with having experienced it, I was able to convey that to the team. Look. This is fabulous, but we've got to be prepared for when we have a bit of a dip or when we have a problem. Just keep working hard. Just focus on what you've been doing. You've proven you can do it. And then it will come out the other side. Um, and um, we did. I think we won Monza. Uh, you've got a list. I've got some here, actually. Valencia, Valencia. and Monza. Yeah, yeah here we go. Yeah. Which was sort of, yeah, they were pretty vital later in the year to, re to revive faith and confidence in the team. And I don't think uh, if I remember rightly, no one believed that Rubens was fit enough to get to the end in Valencia, wasn't it? If, do you remember it was an incredibly hot day, wasn't it? And I think uh, Jock Clear did the most wonderful job just kind of coaxing him through the last few laps because I think uh, Rubens was uh, was was uh, worn out by that stage. It was a boiling hot day and uh, you know, Jock did a wonderful school teacher job keeping him going. But uh, Rubens did a great job at the end of the year, and uh, uh, obviously Monza was uh, was special as well. Yeah. So, um, was there a sort of a, was there a wry smile from you, Ross, with obviously you know, your time at Ferrari and and that coming at Monza, or did, did that not even cross your mind? Uh, <laughs> your, your well, Monza is a very <laughs> special place to win a race. Very special for me. Very special for Rubens, because I mean he'd been at Ferrari as well, and there's just huge passion at Monza. You know. The, and I think because it was Rubens and maybe because I'd been involved with Ferrari and left Ferrari and good terms of fans were fantastic. I mean, everyone, that was a nice thing about 2009. Everyone seemed to enjoy the success. It's a bit like Leicester City in the Premiership. Everyone just seemed to enjoy our success. Uh, you know, we didn't have um, that you know, any real negativism from any of the... Uh, yeah, e even the e yeah, even the other teams, especially the you know the the working part of the teams. There may have been the odd team principal there and there who had a gripe with us, but I remember I think um, was it one of the races where Rubens won. The whole pit, the whole pits 
everybody's pit crew was out in the pits cheering him as he came through the came through the pits. Uh, and that that was a lot to do with Rubens, but I think yeah everyone enjoyed our success, um, certainly at, at working level, and uh, everyone yeah, it was it was a great story. So, um, but in that yeah in that season we had a little revival in the second half, which kept us going long enough to to get the job done. Um, I'm just going to move on to to one more. We're we're running short of time. Um, and there's sort of so much that we haven't covered, but I think. This photo here is a great one of you with Jensen um, having just clinched the title. Um, in in terms of your your career's work, both of you, I'll come to you, Nick, first. Um, where where does this experience rate? It's surely it's near or if not the top. And then the same question to Ross as well with you know your time at Benetton, Ferrari, um, Braun, and then Mercedes. Where, where is this? I mean, it, it's clearly, you know, well up there. I mean, it was very different from things I'd experienced before. I mean, um, you know, I'd, I'd been at Aston Martin for a long time and, um, you know, rescued that a couple of times from uh, uh, pretty difficult situations. Uh, we had some great achievements at Ford uh, in terms of some, some great products and what have you. But I think in terms of, you know, really taking something from the ashes, this was, this was up there. And I think Ross has you know, touched on it a couple of times. It was the relationship between everyone within the team. I mean, Jensen and I had gone back a long way and there'd been lots and lots of hard times and, you know, cajoling him along, uh, you know, through 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008 was really tough work. And, you know, this was, this was payback time and uh, it didn't matter whether you were a gearbox fitter, a driver, um, everyone had great times and everyone was really in it together. Um, and we kind of walked the talk. I mean, we had no money whatsoever, as uh, as I've said before. And, you know, I, I remember um, at the, the Valencia Grand Prix, we, we won the race. And then, you know, Ross and I were in seats 34A and B at the back of an EasyJet flight to Luton with all the fans. And it was great. And we arrived back at Luton Airport at about three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, the, 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 the fans on the plane couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, you guys were just, you know, winning the Grand Prix and now you're with us. Uh, How long know. did it take them to realise that they just sat down next to, to, to you two? Oh, not well. We 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 got um, mobbed in the airport because you know you're in the you're in the easy jet queue. It's really good fun, as Nick said. It was fabulous time, and so everybody seemed to enjoy the success. And um, yeah, it wasn't intentional. I mean, if you if you wanted to to structure a sort of um, a PR campaign, you'd send your your executives off to travel easy jet because that would look really cool. But that was necessity. It wasn't it wasn't an intended strategy. But it was actually really good fun. I mean, we were riding a wave, and uh, it, it was really good fun to to get close to the fans, talk to the fans. They buy you a drink, or they want to buy you a drink. You have to be careful; far too much to drink. But anyway, uh, they it was a really great experience, and all part of the whole thing. I, I think what was yeah, the the exciting bit was really a lot of stuff that people don't see in that, that there was all this racing stuff going on but you know through the year you know we knew we couldn't continue like this i mean it wasn't going to continue like that there were two you know relatively ordinary blokes who had inherited this formula 1 team because there was no alternative but what was going to come next so running in parallel with all of this was you know well 2009's great but 
you know, there was a big risk that we were going to go bust, you know, at the end of the 2009 season. And so, you know, we had to find another solution. And obviously, as we did, uh, you know, better on the track, people became more attracted to the team and, uh, you know, fortunate enough to have uh, a few people who wanted to, uh, to invest in the team. But, you know, there were several stories running in parallel. And, you know, towards the end, uh, obviously, the, uh, the relationship with, uh, with Mercedes-Benz, uh, you know, we managed to hit a home run with uh, with Petronas as um, as sponsors. Uh, obviously, a separate story there of uh, you know the hiring of, uh, of of Michael, which started off from what I remember as a discussion in a nightclub, didn't it? So, you know, we were Ross and I were uh, you know, dancing on the floor, and Michael was there, and it was hey Ross, why aren't you going to have a discussion with him? See if he uh, see if he fancies to go at this for next year. And of course he of course he did. But there were so many so things th- running. All in, so, uh, yeah. Absolutely, that's where, where the conversation started, wasn't it? Absolutely amazing. So, uh, finally, uh, Ross, describe, where, where does it, I mean, you know, you had so much success at Ferrari with Michael and success at Benetton again with Michael, but your name was on the, your name was on the lid, as it were, with this one and all the experience. D- does this outweigh them? Um, I mean, first of all, yeah, the, uh, my name was on the car, which was, was uh, which was mildly embarrassing, but actually I was extremely proud of. And, and it was the idea of the management team, Nick and the other people in that, you know, we had a management group as well as the normal management uh, who had been the sort of, who had been the nucleus of of um, the team surviving, and uh, and we were all shareholders, and we lo- kicked around lots of names to the team, and eventually, I say to my mild embarrassment, but I was very proud of it, the others suggested we should call it Braun GP, and um, so that that was a great honour. Um, and I think with everything else that went on, with uh, you know the fact we rescued the team, the fact we we won the championship with no money, the fact we then were able to um, acquire Mercedes as the investors and uh, holders of the team, and the fact that's now gone on to such great success, I think one would have to say this is the pinnacle of my career so far, anyway. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Uh, but I have been lucky in having some very special, very special times. The first drivers' championship for Ferrari for a long time. Um, my relationship with Michael was very, very special. So I don't want to uh, to um, uh, undermine that. But I say just all the events that surrounded this. Um, you know, if you'd said to me 18 months earlier, you're going to be um, you're going to be owner of a team. And you're going to win the world championships, uh, you know. You'd say crazy, you know. There was a, some books have been written, as you said, but also we had some approaches for films to be written. And it was this thing: well, this script wouldn't be believed if it wasn't true, you know, because it just couldn't happen. Couldn't happen that a team in those circumstances would win the world championship. It would just seem too, uh, it just seemed like a fantasy. So it was, it was. Um, that's a long way of saying yes. It was a pinnacle of my career. I, uh, t- what I wanted to do today is sort of wind back 20 years because uh, this year is your 20th anniversary of competing at the TT. It's an, an amazing figure. And I actually, I sat and I, and I tried to have a think about other sportsmen that have been at the top of their game for 20 years because you have been at, you know, at the front of the TT. And there's obviously Rossi and Bikes, um, the likes of Fittipaldi, Mark Martin, Richard Petty, Brian Redman, um, probably a couple of footballists and maybe some cricketers, but doing a five-day test isn't really the same as 
is going around the TT. So <laughs> going back to 96, what was it like going there for the first time, knowing you were actually going to be competing? Can you, can you remember what the sort of apprehension? And yeah, the, you know, I, it was an amazing journey. Really. Like we, I could sit here probably for an hour and just talk about that, that one first TT. You know, it's, I was doing some British Championship. I was doing, I did the Northwest 200. It was the first road race I did in 94. But it, I was struggling as privateer. Didn't really have any budget to run anything. I was running on old tyres, old pistons, old this, old brake pads, and you know I, I always wanted to do the TT, but never knew how I would do it. And but I wanted to do it properly at some stage. And you know I was lucky. I got some sponsorship off uh, off Paul Bird, and uh, and you know I got my first new bike, and I, I had all the, the tools with me, you know. And I thought, and we had a real successful Northwest Tour. And I was lying second and in the race with Joey Dunlop and uh, all these top riders, and I thought. I said, I remember saying to Birdie, I said, do you fancy doing the TT? And he went, ah, go on then. And it was just like that. I got a real late entry for it. And uh, but I knew I always wanted to do it. But, you know, I, I, I got off the ferry and I had nowhere to stop. I was stopping in, in, my, in my van, my empty box van, basically. And, and there's a real good friend of mine who's not with us anymore called Mick Lofthouse. Uh, he said, oh, you know, do the TT. You know, you, you'll be fine. You know, you're a smooth rider. You know, just, just come over and do it. And... Uh, and he said, I'll meet you outside the hotel. I'm stopping in the Monaville Hotel. And uh, so I pulled up outside the Monaville Hotel, the ferry, ferry doctor, like six o'clock in the morning. I was laid on the front of the seats having a bit of a snooze. And Mick come out and said, oh, great, you're here. And I'll come in for a breakfast. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Isle of Man community and everybody in the Isle of Man so friendly. They invited me in for breakfast. And then they ended up giving me a room in the hotel. So I had, like, a box room in the hotel. And I always wondered why Mick stopped there. You know, Mick left, I stopped there and... I think he had to uh, run across a landing at the night time and uh, give the old landlady a bit of a servicing every now and again. I think, <laughs> I think that was part of the deal. So uh, it was uh, a few extras tied in there. But uh, yeah, I mean, and I remember going on the start line and they used to practice at five o'clock in the morning. It was quarter past five, so you'd be up at four in the morning, you had your bike scrutineered. It was still dark at the time. And it was one of those four seasons in... Not in one day, it was actually four seasons in one lap because the, the lap so big, it was it was a bit damp and then it was wet, then it was windy, there was leaves on the track and then there was fog on the mountain and there was quite low sun around Ramsey. So I was like, what am I doing involved in this? And, you know, a little mix set off and his 125 off, he disappeared. And, you know, and it, was, it, it was really tough because that, you know, that year as well on the last uh, last day of practice on the Friday, uh, actually Mick, Mick crashed and was was killed actually in in, in practice and uh, it was you know I felt like at the time just loading up going home you know this is not for me and uh, and I thought you know the sun the sun came out and it had been a bad patchy week of practice and then I thought I'll do the race and see how I feel and off we went and you know Joey Dunlop won the race I finished fifteenth I got the best newcomer award and it, the rest is history if you like but uh, yeah it just got older me that that year and <coughs> you know but going back to when I was a kid going to my dad, you know, 10 years old, watching watching the racing. My dad did a little bit of racing, and uh, he wasn't a bad old racing, my dad, but uh, he was too interested in in drinking, fighting, and women. That was the, <laughs> that was my dad's problem. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, 96, I, I remember, I can just remember it so so much. And there's, there's lots of other things I remember from it, you know, as well. Some, you know, I remember seeing Mick Lofthouse's helmet on the side of the road, and I thought, oh, Mick's broken down, and, and, and he hadn't, he'd, he'd crashed and stuff, so... But, you know, it, it made me stronger, I suppose. And I came back the year after in 97 on my little Aprilia 250 and I stood on the podium for the first time with uh, Joy Dunlop and Ian Locker and, 
you know, I came back in 98, Honda's 50th anniversary, and just, just I've ridden everything there, you know, two strokes, four strokes, singles, 250s, 125s, Ducatis, V-twins, and like I say, the, re the, the rest is history, and I just can't, I can't, can't get it out of my system yet. <laughs> you, you've mentioned there, John, there was, um, you know, Joey Dunlop won the race, and you were lying second to him um, at Northwest 200. What was it like, you know, with the likes of Joey Dunlop in front of you? I mean, you were, what, 25, I think, at the time? Yeah, I was, and, and you know, I just, it was funny, I was sort of really watching Joey, not watching where I was going, really. I thought, this is, <laughs> I shouldn't be here. This is, that's the great man himself, you know, the, the most successful guy ever. And there was just something about him. I don't know what it was, but, you know, the yellow helmet, the, the Honda leathers on, and, you know, it, I was there slipstreaming him, passing him, and, and being alongside him, and, whoa, you know, and it, it was, it was, it was really, really cool. It was amazing. I mean, I, I you know, it was, it was, he was my hero, and, and you know, going back before that, I, I went to get his autograph. Uh, he was at the bottom of Bray Hill uh, in a garage with like the Rothmans factory, RVF 750s and stuff. And I'd bought a picture from the shop and took it down. I said, "Would you sign this?" And and I said to him, you know, I said, "Would I'm going to stand on the podium with you one day, Joey?" And uh, <laughs> He sort of just went, hur, he, hur, hur, and that, that, it, was, uh, it was sort of difficult to understand at the best of times. I was like, and uh, in 1997, I did. I did achieve that. You know, I did stand on the podium with him, and I actually reminded him. I said, do you remember? <laughs> and he sort of said, hur, hur, hur. <laughs> a few, <laughs> few Fs and stuff in there, and that was about it. He never, he never remembered, but I remembered. I remembered it well, and, uh, you know, I was such a happy bunny, sat up on the podium with him, and... Uh, and again, you know, we were rivals and I got quite friendly with him and I don't think many people did get sort of in behind Joe, you know, and get into him a little bit. But I, maybe I was young and I was asking him millions of questions and flat out because I was his teammate in 2000, Joey's last ever teammate on the Vimto uh, SP1 Hondas. And, uh, you know, I was a new boy. He was 48 years old, grey hair, little specs on. He just didn't look like a racer. And, and that year he won three TTs and... You know, and whatever I've achieved, I'll never achieve what Joey achieved. You know, it, it, he won on a superbike, then jumped on a one two five, and won on a one two five. So, you know, if I jumped on a one two five now, it'd disappear up my. You know, there's just no way I could w win on a one two five. You know, so he was just so, you know, just so much talent. You know, and he was the same age as my dad, which made it really weird as well. So, <laughs> um, I d you sort of. Touching there, asking him lots of questions. How useful were the sort of the older statesmen of the TT when you first arrived? Because it is you always, you know, it's about it's a track that obviously Matt, you'll know better than, better than me. But it's it obviously it's experience there that counts so much and, and knowledge. Yeah, it, it's it if you can just get any sort of information off anybody at that level, uh, you take it. You know, even if it's even if it makes a tenth of a second or one corner, it's definitely worth all the questions that you ask, but uh, he never said a right lot, didn't Joe? You know, it, it sort of let you know he wasn't wasn't really ready to be talking all then, you know, he'd sort of open up and buy a vodka and, and, and we'd be chatting away about all sorts of things. But uh, yeah, there was there was lots of other riders as well. There was the Ian Lockers who won seven TTs. There was Ian Duffus. There was Jim Moody. There was an uh, eight times winner. There was uh, Ian Simpson, three times winners. I just... I was sort of the kid just sort of asking the questions and I used to sneak in the awnings and look at the bikes and I'd be 
trying to look at what gearing they had on and what rear sprocket they had on and there was all sorts of tricks going on. There were people would put bl blob of silicon over the number on the sprocket so they couldn't see what gearing they had on. But it was all the things that went on and all the trickery and schoolduggery going on in the paddock. But uh, I looked up to them guys, Joey, all them top top runners, and uh, I just wanted to be there. And you know, I, I served my time basically. You know, I went in '96 and and chipped away, and it you know it took three years for me to win my first TT. And then uh, even then, when it went when I won my first TT, I was all you know. I'd be I'd be the one in the nightclub. I'd be up late. I wouldn't be prepared, eating the wrong food, no drinking stuff. You know, not water and stuff. And you know, I worked with other riders in the past, like Jim Moody. Whipped me into shape, got me in bed early, got me up, got me the first in in line for practice and things like that. So all these riders, I, I, I massive respect for them. You know, and, and even now at 43, I'm still still learning. You know, there's always something you can learn at, at the TT because if it isn't the weather, the conditions, or a tire, or the wind, or or something, there's always something that will throw you a curveball at the TT. I think I'm going to stoke the fire a little bit more uh, because... Oh, that was another stitch-up. <laughs> well, yeah, so I can tell you that story as well. Another complete Ferrari yeah. stitch-up. So, well, this is from William, and he says, Hi, Lester, would you be able to recall the manner in which the keenly impartial Italian governing body handled the McLaren team over the Monza weekend of 76? And he finishes it with both barrels, mate. <laughs> OK. <laughs> so I well, we, 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 we... To give a background to it, we had... Um, we had discovered that the fuel, we, went, we used five-star fuel. That was the rules. You had to use five-star fuel. And because we were low-budget, unlike Ferraris, we just bought fuel wherever we were in the world. You know, if we went to Silverstone, we just stopped at the petrol station and filled the tank up on the truck with five-star fuel, which was meant to be maximum, minimum 98, maximum of 101 octane. And so I, in my naive way, that's what we did. And we used to go to Austria. And in Austria, the engine used to blow up a lot. Nearly all the teams would have engines bang. And uh, the, the, the perceived wisdom was that there was a huge hill in Austria and this long time on the fourth throttle was too much for the engines. But I thought, this is, can't be true because we're at altitude already, so the engines aren't producing full power. They're not revving anymore, so it's, uh, you know, it's not true. So it must be some other factor. And the only thing I could think of was we used this Austrian fuel, which was available in the paddock, five-star. And so I took some of it back and gave it to Texaco, who were our sponsor, who didn't provide us with fuel. Would have if we'd asked, but we didn't bother. And uh, they measured this fuel and said, oh, this fuel is rubbish. It meets the, um, the top, the research, the, uh, research uh, figure, but its motor number is rubbish. So all fuel has you know, octane, two octane range. One's called motor and one's called research. The motor is far more important because it's done by running an engine in a given conditions and seeing how much it, when it detonates. And this is what Benz invented this. He made an engine with a movable cylinder head and he literally ran all the petrol he could find and turned the cylinder head down. He had numbers on the cylinder head. And when it knocked, because you could hear it, bang, 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 he said, oh, that fuel's 90, and this one's 80, and that one's 70. And he could measure them with his engine. This is a single cylinder engine. So he invented this motor number, which is far better than the research. The research is just burning the, the fuel in retort and measuring the speed of the burning but not this motor number. So I said to Texaco, well, we need better fuel. You know, we, we, can you make better fuel? Oh, yes. So they, they actually shut down a refinery in Belgium and played with the knobs, which cost millions of dollars because they lost the whole day's output, played with the refinery because it's not an exact science, and built some fuel that had a motor number way, way higher in the 90s, uh, almost the same as the research number. They made a tanker load of this fuel, put it to one side, and went back to making normal five-star. 
So this is what we used, and this allowed us to actually change the compression ratio on the engine, raise the compression ratio on our, on our engine a little bit, and we had costs, pistons made by Marley in Germany, Germany, which were lighter than the Cosworth pistons. So our car, our engine had a, an edge towards the end of 76, better fuel and better, slightly lighter pistons. So this was a good advantage. So because you can't keep many secrets in Formula 1, this started to get, you know, Read. And once again, Ferraris, with their, their PR system and their lawyers, started to spread the story that McLarens ran illegal fuel. They did cartoons in the papers with people holding their noses, and you can't go near a McLaren because of the stink, and, and so on. So they, they engineered this, this, this bullshit again. And our fuel was illegal. But every race time, we checked with Texaco. They would take a sample and run it through the test and say yes it's still because we thought sitting in the tr in this tanker it might you know change but no and what the octane we decided on was 101.8 because the rule said the maximum octane was 101 and then in brackets which was part of the rule plus or minus one percent tolerance so 101 plus one percent is 102.1 so our fuel was 101.8 so it was inside the rules and we checked it every time, every race. And it was brought to the racetrack by a little Belgian guy in a little truck with 10 drums. And he made his own way to Monza or Spa or wherever he was going. Nothing to do with me. And he turned up at Monza, as he was meant to do, with his fuel. And we got the fuel and we used it. So we were doing this. And so Ferraris are doing all this publicity about the illegal fuel. And then with a great show on practice day, they came and took fuel samples from all the cars, you know, Ferraris, McLarens, all the cars, and went off with them. And then the next day they took fuel samples again, and off they went with them. Didn't say anything. They just took the fuel samples. Didn't tell us any results. By the way, it's quite quick to do. You know, if you had the right laboratory, it takes ten, five minutes to do. And uh, so, as a background to the story, just because I hope I'm not taking too long with this. No, no, this is it's all great stuff. Um, I never left the racetrack. I always went stayed with my mechanics until they went home, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, because there were decisions to make. I was there. I didn't work anymore, but I had a wonderful network because I went around and looked at what all the other cars were doing because I could see what had broken on their cars, talk to their mechanics. I was able to go into all their garages, look inside their engines. Oh, I had all this fantastic just, feedback. Just like today. Just, just like, like today. today. Exactly so I, I could go inside the Ferrari garage because I was an ex-mechanic. And I knew exactly what they were all doing, you know, and, and taught their language, if you like. And we were always friendly with the mechanics, Ferrari mechanics. And Nicky, you know, on, the, on a mechanic level, we had a lot of fun with Ferraris. We used to make, make, take the mickey out of them, and, you know, they took the mickey out of ours. And Nicky used to come and visit us and check our cars out and talk to us because his Italian wasn't perfect. His English was very good. Nicky speaks perfect vernacular English. He can, he can do repartee in English. He can't in Italian, but he can in English. And uh, so he used to enjoy, he used to spend a lot of time in our pit, more than he did in Ferraris. He'd have to trot back to Ferraris because practice was starting. Uh, anyway, so I went home with the drivers and got taken out for dinner. You can tell another marvellous story about that. But just got taken out for dinner and everybody was amazed. Here was I at dinner. You know, all the other team managers were coming and saying, oh, what are you doing here, blah, 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 because I'd never been seen you know, at dinner in the restaurant. And we went to this posh restaurant down the road. And then we got back and then the driver said, look, you know, go to bed, get up in the morning, come to work with us. You know? So I said, okay, I'll pretend I'm you know, a posh team manager, you know, a booking team manager as opposed to a practical one, and I'll go to work with you guys. So at nine o'clock in the morning, we got to the racetrack and I think the warm up was at 10. 
and, and, and Monza has a big fence around it and big gates. You know, it's, it's physically, they're probably all like that now, but in those days they weren't. But Monza was definitely a, a barricade because the Italians are so enthusiastic. They nearly need machine guns to keep them out. And uh, so they had, you know, police on the gate. We got to the place, and inside the gate were Ferrari personnel, and, and, and Piccinini, who was the Ferrari lawyer, was there inside the gate. I thought, what's that all about? So we opened the gates, went inside, the four of us, two drivers and Teddy and I, and they arrested me in Italian. Nobody would speak English. Piccinini had perfect English, but he wouldn't speak English. Nobody would speak English. They just arrested me, and they had a jail, and they took me and put me in the jail, and nobody would tell me why I was in jail. The other three had to go to work because they had to go you know, and get the cars ready to do the warm-up. So. so whilst I was in jail, um, Teddy was taken up before the stewards of the meeting and said, your cars have been using illegal fuel. Your fuel is 101.8 octane, and the rule is 101, and your practice times don't qualify, so your, all your practice times are void. You'll have to drain your cars, fill your cars up with the fuel that's provided for the circuit by, by Agip, and you race with that fuel, and you'll have to start in the back of the grid. Meanwhile, I'd managed to get a sympathetic Italian journalist to say, What's, why am I in jail? And they said, oh, because they say that you smuggled the fuel into, into Italy. And Ferraris had made this up. It's a brilliant story. So I was in jail for smuggling. And so I had to get somebody to go to the hotel, because the little truck driver didn't like Grand Prix racing, the little Belgian guy that bought the fuel, and had to go to the hotel and find him, and he was there, fortunately. He hadn't gone shopping or sightseeing or anything, and got him back to the racetrack with all the paperwork, which was locked in his truck, and show them how the fuel had been imported into Italy, paid the duty, blah, blah, blah. So they had to let me out. So I went off to the, to the stewards, obviously, immediately, and said, you know, we've been railroaded. And they said, because uh, I said, why is that? I said, because it says plus or minus 1%, so the 101.8 is legal. And they said, oh, actually, yes, you're right. They knew this all along. They said, oh, oh dear, yes, we've made a mistake. But the stewards of the meeting's decision cannot be changed. still that way. So they had made this decree, and that was it. So we started on the back row of the grid. We got railroaded. Our fuel was perfectly legal. Texaco were going to cause a huge fuss and then decided not to because that would just get more publicity for it and only people will remember would be Texaco illegal. They wouldn't remember Texaco illegal being exonerated. So the FIA and the Ferrari sent us a, a telex on Monday morning saying, oh, we're terribly sorry, we made a mistake. And that was the end of it. But we got stuffed by the Ferrari very successfully. And Teddy, of course, didn't pick up on the 101.8 thing, which he should have instantly. So we got on the back of the grid, and James was making his way up through the grid and got punted off by um, Welshman um, Price and into the sand barrier and uh, walked home. The crowd spat on him and threw things at him. And then he and I got in the car with his, with his girlfriend and I, and the crowd tried to turn the car over in the, in, in, the, in the roads out of the circuit. The crowd got hold of the car and tried to turn it over, but they, they didn't succeed. I just held it at valve bounce, so every time it touched the ground, it shot forward. <laughs> it ran over a few, but not, didn't injure anybody, really. It's, it is just a, it's amazing <laughs> yeah, hearing about the 76 season, because it is, it is just the most incredible season in Yeah, in it was all it's, the way through. Yeah. There wasn't a dull moment. No. Um, now, um, moving on to the Mini Melia, um, you first tackled this in uh, Jaguar XK120. Yeah. What were your initial, I mean, obviously you would have known about the race, but what was your original, what, what were your first recollections of actually well, doing Well, you must realise that at that time we were developing disc brakes and I was with, with Norman Jewess and we were purely working on the brakes. 
and we we read this thing. My gosh, there's a race up there in Italy. Why don't we go and, and enter it and just see how we do? And uh, I suppose we had to call the factory and ask Losty England. Anyway, they agreed and uh, went in. And to me, that was a very frightening race. I must say that because because I did I didn't know the circuit. And there's no way that you could you could do a thousand miles knowing the circuit, other than if you have, which I did. You know, Dennis Jenkinson, Jenks beside me, with a rolling map thing that we call the toilet roll, and I think it was about 27 meters long. And on that on there, we'd placed down all sorts of notes so that when we're coming up a hill, I'd know Jenks would give me a signal like slow down or flat out, and so on. So he had the whole lot in his in his hands, and he I mean amazing really because. He had to obviously be looking down like this and with the G-loads and so on. Of course, poor chap was, was sick quite often. And then he, luckily the other way. But, uh, and then you've got problems, like I said to him, looking, I don't know, it's gonna be very difficult. We've got to have a stop to have a slash. So, and so we tried out the best way of doing that and uh, stopped it. But then we, I said, but look, there's no way we can stop on the, on the thing. When we get to Rome, which is where the first control was, um, when we get there, we, we'll, do it there. Well, when we come into Rome, they put up 75,000 grandstand seats. So I had to go go across behind something, have a quick pee, and go, it came back and it took me one minute, four seconds, which wasn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> the, so uh, when you first went there, you were just driving blinds then, when, when you oh, first I, went Oh, absolutely. When we, were, when we first went there and started, we, did, we didn't know anything other than you know that's well we had, we're going down to rome on um the, we we knew the route obviously because that was fixed uh but but no more than that but it was pretty relaxed i mean when he went in uh, 1952 in norman he, he drove the car out there didn't he yes yeah, oh. well, exactly i mean you're more famous obviously for driving a german taxi to victory in 55 <laughs> but which in fact there's a picture behind me on the wall and i try to remember is that the raticos or the future parts you tell a story about how you had to do it in less than an hour at some astonishing average that's, that's right this was a footer i think right and uh, and we wanted to do it in less than an hour uh, which was because quite difficult uh, which we which I, th I think we managed to do actually I'd, i was lucky enough last year to come out to um the footer pass and have a ride in an S a 300 SLR, and certainly you were there with sort of doing onboard shots and things. And uh, what surprised me was just how relentless that pass is. It's corner after corner yeah. after corner after yeah. corner. And you always described the 300 SLR as a very sophisticated, you know, smooth car. But it's and how lovely it was to drive over a long distance. But when I got into it, it wasn't sophisticated and smooth at all compared to modern machinery. I think people don't appreciate just how sort of raw these cars were and the noise and the, you know, I obviously couldn't get down behind the windscreen being Yeah, but I mean, but when, when you're racing, there's, you obviously you're dry, you, you use the steering wheel just to present the car to the corner, Th then you use the throttle to, to, you know, to virtue to steer it. And, and the, the 300 SLR was a staggering car. I mean, really, well, I mean, we were doing speeds up to 180. I mean, the one which I think was probably the most interesting one uh, the last Cremona to Brescia is 135 k's, and on that we aver uh, averaged uh, uh, 165 miles an hour, I think it was. There's a lovely bit of period film, isn't there, of you overtaking the plane? Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but planes weren't that fast. Then. Yeah, <laughs> the planes you can see the silver bullet going down this straight road, and it's just going right into the distance. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier, Stone, that it was it was one race that really scared you. Yeah. Um, why did you keep going back? Well, because it's the most exhilarating, exciting race anywhere in the world. Um, and it, it, it just to me, I mean, I'm a racing driver. And to, to take part in an event like that one, I think is really is just pushing, it, pushing the limits about as far as you can. But you, see, you, you always yeah. did it with a co-driver, whereas your great chum, Fanjo, he would never take a dri- co-driver with him. No, but he? the reason he wouldn't take a driver is he had a crash uh, in Argentina and his co-driver was killed. And so he, he said, look, I'd, he would never take somebody else's, you know, never put them in that danger. Ah. Yeah, apparently. And Because uh, obviously Fanjo finishing second in 55, I'd, in your opinion, that was, I mean, without a co-driver, that must have been an impressive feat. Oh, I think it's staggering. Um, really, I mean, it, it amazes me because Fangio certainly was faster in, in Formula One to, than myself, but I could usually beat him in sports cars, sports car race. I don't know why. I asked him, I said, look, why aren't you faster in, in sports cars? And uh, in, in sports cars, yeah. And he said, because he likes to see the front wheels. I mean, which, which is seemed, seemed to me an amazing thing to say, but he, he liked to be able to see his front wheels here. How do you feel now about the way the, the, the Williams episode ended? Um, well, it's, it, it's, it seems to have been a kind of comedy of errors by, by the time you unpick it all. Um, you, it's a good chapter in it, actually, in my book. <laughs> David, why don't you tell us where in? people can buy this and how much it is? Because I think we should, think we should get yeah, us all pub, out in the open. Buy, costing £30. There's actually a lot of people do have referred to your book. So you've, you've got certainly some future purchases right here. Yeah, no, no. Right it's, I mean, there's conjecture. I've got, I don't have the full picture. I have, a, um, I have a, an idea of what happened. And I have um, some background knowledge to what might have happened as well. But I, I think that... It's possible that, 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 that Frank regrets the decision um, um, and that it, um, that it was a, it, it wasn't, it didn't turn out the way they wanted it to. But um, I think that it affected my attitude towards our sports quite badly. And I think I became slightly, slightly um, cynical about, well, I thought the, sp- the sport was cynical. And so I think that that, um, that changed my approach to, to the way we, we run things in F1. I mean, you know, I worked on the, the presumption that, um, that if I did well enough in 96, then I would have earned my right to stay, keep my job in F1. Winning the World Championship the should do one. it. You'd think so. Yeah. Um, you'd think that would at least, you know, at least be able to stay and have another go after that. But um, it doesn't work like that. When, when did you first know for sure? Because, I, I mean, I know the story broke Hockenheim, Andrew Benson did a yeah. piece in Autosport, um, and the place went haywire. But when did you actually find out for definite that you were... I found out when he when it was mm. ran a Autosport. Well, uh, if you can call mm. that finding it mm. out. Um, but you had no clue before that no, came out? No, I assumed... I, I'd, I'd taken the view that this was just sensationalism. And I thought, well, maybe there's... And it was only a gradual process of finding out that actually there was some truth to it. And that happened between Germany and then eventually at Monza, before Monza, I was told. And so I had to go, to, I'm still fighting for the World Championship, and I had to go to the race knowing I'd lost my job. It's quite humiliating, you know, it's quite upsetting, and especially when you've got your teammate there who's fighting for the World Championship as well, and he's keeping his job for next year. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It's a bit... I mean, uh, that, I mean yeah. that, that, must, that, that must have... 
I mean, you still have to dig exceptionally yeah, deep to look, deal with these, that. That's what the test is. Mm. It's not whether you can drive. It's how you cope with all the other stuff. There's lots of people who can drive. Um, but it's about these other trials and tests you get put through uh, in the sport. And I was learning fast. You know, I'd come into Formula One, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed at 93. And I'd went through quite a lot in a very short space of time. And um, so, you know, when you read about Formula One from the outside and you see Mansell's unhappy about this or Piquet's unhappy about that and you, Alan Jones is, wants to put an axe in the back of, uh, you know, <laughs> of Reutemann's, you know, shoulder blades and you think, what, what is going on in this sport? You know, what is the matter? And it's only when you get in there you realise how it can happen. Um, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of politics and a lot of... Um, you know, pushing and shoving that goes on. But I mean, how do, I mean, how how did you actually deal with those sort of those last few races of the season, knowing what you you now knew? And I mean, how, how did you cope? I mean, what did you, you do? You can only do what you can. You there's some things you can affect, and there's some things you can't affect. You can't worry about the stuff you can't affect. It's done. There's nothing you can do. So you just go right. I have got a contract that, as far as I know, I can turn up to race. They'll give me a car to race, so I'm going to race the car. You turn up, you race the car, and you just do the best you can. That's the only thing you can do. All the politics of F1, part of the reason why when you left, it was, it was like turning off a light switch. There was no, oh, am I going to do DTM? Am I going to do... It was no, just no, because, you know, I, I, I'd lost my dad when I was 15. Um, you know, my dad just retired. Um, and we were looking forward to, you know, happy times in the future. I've got four children. You know, I'd been through the risks of Formula One. So when I stopped, I wasn't going to do something silly. You know, I just I just made that a rule. I'm just gonna you know stay away from all of those temptations. And um, so I was I was th you know I'd, I had my full of uh, of that. You know you don't you can't you can't really do it half-heartedly either. You know you can't go into it and go oh, I'll do a bit of this. It, but it's not it's not how you're built. You know you you have to win. You have to do the best. So there's a the moment you get into race is this pressure that you comes from within you to perform 100%. And if it's, you don't want to put yourself through that mangle if you're going to get you know, beaten up by a bunch of 22-year-olds you know, in, in DTM or something like that because you don't care. Yeah. You know? <laughs> what I've done, I've, I'm not going to do it. So there's that element too. You know, you're not getting faster as a 40-year-old. Mm. You, you mentioned the Mini there, and obviously a large part of your career was um, and success was alongside this Mini and with the Mini. Um, it, People obviously, they didn't take to it straight away, did they? Because, I mean, it was so different to Drivers things that it came before. Drivers I approached before. to take a Mini who'd been driving a Healy thought it was a demotion. And if somebody had got to go into Abingdon, um, nearly a mile from the workshop, take the Mini, can't I take a Healy? It was not seen as the glamorous thing it was. But we forget the timing for that car, the Beatles, Carnaby Street the 50s, late 50s, the country was coming out of the war, it was in kind of where we were free. The timing could not have been better. It, it just caught on. And Paddy's first win, we were on the Sunday night of the London Palladium, which got, I think, three times the number of viewing figures that Strictly Come Dancing gets. With the Rolling Stones and Tommy Cooper, it, it, it was just perfect timing. It was a lucky timing. Yeah, I mean, well, as you say, it was such a wonderful time, especially for rallying. Yeah. Um, 
But I was wondering, could you sort of paint us a picture of what rallying was like in the 60s? Because I think a, a lot of uh, viewers and, and listeners will, you know, fans of rallying and they'll watch the likes of um, Loeb and whoever it is rallying nowadays. Or well, not so much Loeb anymore. Um, but it's such, I mean, it's a different sport compared to what it was in the 60s. Because well, a, I've got a quote from you here, actually. Um, the first international rally you did um, with John contained endless zigzags to ensure that no Michelin guide recommend recommendations were missed en route. It's, it's, it's very different <laughs> to what it's like well, nowadays. Well, for instance, if you want to make old rally drivers cry, just say one word, Liège. This was the thing that started in Belgium, went down to Bulgaria, and was 96 hours with one hour break. 96 hours is four days and four nights. One hour break, not per day, one hour over the 96 hours. Pat Moss won it one year with Anne, and they said that they were hallucinating. They were seeing burning lorries. There weren't any burning lorries. I live with John Sprinzel in a Sprite. We won a class, I think. 96 hours in a Sprite. I wanted a midwife when I got out of the car there, not a bloody mechanic. It was amazing. But it, the sort of event, to give you an example, if there were two sections, if there was a long section with a hill at each end but a flat piece of road in the middle, well, that's not a problem. You start there, do the hill, go like hell across the valley. Over. They neutralised the middle bit, so you got two hill climbs. So everybody lost time on the two hills from that section to that section. And the other thing they did, the organiser, I think his aim was to have one finisher, I think he got down to nine. But he had a table for the police showing A to B, two hours, B to D, B to C, two, 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 whatever, whatever. those are the official hours, Mr Chief Constable. On the other side, which they didn't show to the police, they had the opening times of the controls. So you say I've got five sections of two hours, so you should reach the fifth control ten hours after you've started. Fine, do that, but that control closed nine and a half hours after the start. Please don't know that. So unless you were aware of this sneaky double timing system, you got chucked out of the rally. And the final event, the organiser said, I'm, with tears in his eyes, I can still see him at this driver's meeting, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really upset. The police have insisted we put in secret speed checks to stop you speeding. And then he held up a card with the location of the secret speed checks written on them while we wrote them down. Can you imagine the spirit? Why people are nostalgic about an event like that? The Alpine was a massive thing covering all the major French passes. The Monte had got the extra glamour He's starting from Minsk, you're starting from Athens, he's starting from Aberdeen or Swindon or whatever. <laughs> you know, will he be able to get through the snow? There's all that excitement. It wasn't television. You've got Raymond Baxter, 10 o'clock or whatever it was, every night talking about it. And more important, the thing that you got then and you don't have now, you got it on the front page of the national papers. So it was part of the general consciousness. If there's a World Rally Championship today, you're very lucky to find it in any national paper. And if, if it's more than one line, you're really lucky. So with all of that put together, it was quite a glamorous time. So it helped the Mini along. I don't know if you're covering it later, but it was also the reason why BMC folded, but perhaps we can talk about that later. There's, a, there's actually another question here from Chris. Um, you know, you, you've reached 
high levels of success in both singles heaters and uh, the British Touring Car Championship. Which category do you look back? I mean, obviously you're still very much involved in the British Touring Car Championship, but which period do you look back on most fondly? Is it is it uh, F three? F three enjoyment wise was great when uh, the particular year with Mika in nineteen ninety. Uh, Philip Morris Marlborough tasked us with going to Europe to do three races because they had uh, internal budgetary debates going on. Why are you giving this money to the UK when you're not allowed to carry the word Marlborough? We had to cover up. So the chap in charge of them, Graham Vogel, said, well, we believe that the British F3's top championship and WSR is a good team. So they gave us money to go and do three European rounds to see how we compared against the Europeans. So we did Imola, we did Hockenheim, and we're supposed to do one in France. We did Imola first. Uh, we had to switch from our Avon tyres to Michelin's. We're only allowed 10 tyres for the whole weekend. So we used them very carefully. We'd worked out a strategy. The Italians were, were against 42 cars. 40 of them were Delaras, <laughs> <laughs> mainly with Alpha engines. So yeah. we arrived with a, with a Honda and a Mugen Honda. So we're the odd ones out. Mm. Mika and I and the other um, engineer, we drove around in a hire car, went around, did a few laps. What sort of downforce? Where do we start? So let's go, well, that's a fast corner. That's uh, Let's long straight, let's go medium downforce. Because um, we could compare it to like Snetterton to Silverstone Grand Prix track. So we started off and then got into qualifying. Uh, we qualified first and then the, uh, using one set of tyres. Then the Italians panicked because we went P1. They all run no downforce. You've got to be quick down the straight. <laughs> but for qualifying you don't, you want to get around the corners. Yeah. So they all start cranking wing on because they'd seen our car. Um, Chatterello, I think it was, he, Mika panicked a bit. I said, don't worry. I said, they're now using their second set of tyres in second qualifying. We are only going to go out. We're going to sit here, sit tight, be confident, and we're not going to use our second set. We'll keep them for Sunday's race. So we went out, scrubbed them only, come in, took them off sat there with no wheels on the car on the pit lane. We still had our spare pair left. Um, and he stayed P1, stayed P1, and right at the end of Q2, we got pipped for P2 on the grid. So, okay, we're front row, no problem. Sunday morning warm-up, we put on our other pair of new ones, and we blitzed everyone on the warm-up, so they even got more panicky. <laughs> <laughs> so if you work out the strategy, we had a new set just scrubbed for the race, the Italians didn't. And we'd put on our spare pair on the left or right side, I can't remember, and we blitzed them in the warm-ups, and they were just all shaking their head then. <laughs> How can this team come to a new track, you know, this Relt car with a Honda engine, <laughs> we've all got Delara Alphas. Uh, so then they picked on us and scrutineering, your seat belts are illegal, your fire bottle's not legal. So just, they had our car pulled apart for about three or four hours. And luckily the... Italian route agent was there. He come and helped us out with the translation, the English to Italian. And eventually they conceded that it was legal. They were just trying to find something. 
So we went into the race, Mika won it comfortably. Um, but they kept on putting a red flag. Lap one, Mika come round in the lead, red flag. I said to Mika, what's the problem? He said, it's just a car spun, shouldn't be a red flag. Okay, I said, maybe come round in second place, it won't red flag. <laughs> <laughs> Restart again, he comes round leading, another red flag. I said, what's happened this time? He said, just as another car spun off. Third time lucky, we got going, and he won the race comfortably. So tick in the box from Philip Morris. Went to Hockenheim, uh, Schumacher, Michael Schumacher. Uh, we'd never been to Hockenheim. We'd had some advice from a team, what gear ratios, they tucked us up big time. Uh, gear ratios are miles out, we had to change <laughs> gears. Uh, the car was far too stiff for the chicanes, the old Hockenheim. Uh, had a misfire on the engine as well. So we were panicking. Friday night, mm. we were about P22 out of it, 28 cars. Some German journalists come down, oh, you British champions are supposed to be good. I said, yeah, we're okay. We have a few little issues to sort out. <laughs> Gear ratios, misfires, <coughs> cars too stiff. So we softened it around. I was on the phone back to Neil Browns in England about the engine because we had no engine guy there. We couldn't afford it. Uh, we had a spare car there, the Leighton House car. We had that there. We took every electrical component off it we could think of. The tail light, everything was changed. We've got to fix this misfire. Uh, we changed all the springs set up round, changed damper settings, changed the ratios. Went out on Saturday morning, uh, old tyres. He come round, thumbs up, misfire was fixed, chassis much better. Came in, meantime Schumacher's sitting there, arms folded because he's on pole. But second qualifying, still got about 20 minutes to go. Said to Mika, car, he said, much better over the chicanes, gearing's much better, misfire's gone. Give me the new tyres. Put the new tyres on, bang, pole. Schumacher then went out, couldn't get near us. <laughs> <laughs> very satisfying. So, yeah, very so. We won the race again. Um, the Marlborough guy was there. He said, I want you to come across the start line before Schumacher comes out the stadium onto the start. I said, well, tall order, Graham, but we'll do our best. <laughs> and Mika did it. We crossed the line about five seconds ahead of um, Schumacher. So we won that one. So this was winning the fight, the internal Philip Morris battle about budgets. Uh, and then I said, right, the, I think it was Manny Kaur, the third round. But Philip Morris says, don't bother doing it. You don't have to do it now. We'll still give you the money. You've proved enough. And that was it. So we were very happy with our F3. That was a good, yeah. fun exercise. Uh, the touring cars are more challenging engineering-wise because you have to do a lot more. Now we've entered design and building our own cars. Um, that's a good... I love the technical challenge there. Yeah. Uh, even though the rules are much tighter than the super touring, there's still certain areas. So there is still scope for innovation and, and engineering. Yeah, not as much, but yeah. it's you know you can play with certain areas. So yeah, I, I enjoyed F3 and that sort of circumstance. We enjoy going to Macau in '83 with Senna. Won that. No one had been there. That was fantastic. Switching tyres. We beat everyone else: um, Japanese, German, Italian. French F3, British F3, everyone came together for the first time. So that was a, a, a very happy uh, late Sunday night finishing. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Simon mentioned that Le Mans and World Endurance Championship, and obviously there's, there's lots of different ways to get to the same 
um, solution, you know, to get to the same checkered flag. Formula One has obviously been the, the topic of a budget cap and trying to keep costs in check has been has come up time and time again. But the World Endurance Championship seems to manage that to a certain level. Why can't Formula One manage a similar model? Why? You know, I think it could if the if the willing was there. Uh, I think it's quite impressive. Um, with the WEC cars, uh, they, they went to a hybridization program at pretty well the same time as us, um, without so much publicity around it. But actually, it was it was very interesting because it was a much more open set of rules. And of course, we saw quite different solutions from Toyota and, and Audi and and Porsche. Uh, and that, I think that was. I think that was a really good thing because they had got the equivalence about right. You know, the Toyota, Audi, Porsche, who was going to win? You didn't know. There wasn't a, a sort of walkover. Um, and they did seem to get that, that equivalence correct. Now, in Formula One, we didn't actually even look at any form of equivalence. So there's a very, very prescriptive set of rules for the power unit. Uh, and Article 5 now, um, together with some of the the technical directives that um, discuss how you control the electronics, etc., really do lead you to one design of engine. I mean, it, it very clearly leads you to, to a V6. Uh, it has clear cylinder dimensions, etc., etc. And so you're not going to get that diversity that the, you had in Le Mans. I think it's great, the, device, the diversity in Le Mans. I think the whole uh, encouragement that uh, that Le Mans gives to innovation is fabulous. In Formula One, we're very, very nervous of it, I think. Uh, I, I guess the trouble is that we are so commercial. Is there a manufacturer out there who has the courage to go a different way? Uh, and I'm not sure there is. It's uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, Pat, something we worked out actually yesterday, um, I think this is your eighth motorsport podcast. Um, it's, it's, it goes some way to it. So there's, I think a couple of other people have been in twice, but it goes in some way to <laughs> how, how well you've actually... Um, I think that's almost more podcasts than you've done, Simon. And <laughs> I've done. Must mean um, I have very little to do, I guess. <laughs> no, it's, it's, so it goes some way to, to uh, explaining just how good you are at um, explaining very technical issues in a, in a way that even I can understand, which um, is, is, is quite, quite a challenge. I want to talk a little bit about this year and, and Williams's performance and, and what you're thinking about for next year. Um, I just wanted to touch on Ross Braun and the the talk of him taking over the sort of the future direction of the sport because that's exactly what we've just been talking about. Um, I, apparently, it is agreed, but the, obviously the sale of Formula One needs to go through, which it hasn't yet. Um, if this happens, good thing for Formula One having someone like Ross on board to helping direction of the of the sport. Absolutely, and I I, I think you know. Just a few minutes ago, we were talking about what, what's wrong with Formula One and the rulemaking process, the knee-jerk reactions, the lack of research, etc. But I think this is an excellent first step. Uh, but I do think it's a first step. Uh, Ross is a, a really good guy. I worked with him for a long while. Immense respect for him. Um, you know, he's a, he's a good thinker. He, he's logical. Uh, he's not scared to form opinions, he's not scared to fight for his opinions. Um, but I don't think he can do it alone. Uh, and I really think what we need to do is set up a uh, something rather like the technical working group, but it needs to be um, 
separated from the teams. Now, by all means, listen to the teams, get opinions. I've nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, particularly in sporting matters. But you must have a level of impartiality, uh, and you need to have people who you can trust. You know, it's like government, isn't it? Do we really want a referendum for for everything that's going on? You know, we, we don't seem to have done very well in this country already <laughs> with the, that uh, that way of government. And yet, in Formula One, we we have a referendum every few weeks about what are we going to do about qualifying? What are we going to do about this regulation, that regulation? It's not the way forward. Get good people in there, fund them, because you know we need to do research. We're talking about overtaking. The reason no one knows is because the work hasn't been done. Throw some money at it put it in a wind tunnel, you know, you can go over to Toyota in Germany and hire one of their wind tunnels, you can put together a programme and you can start to understand what, what really matters and then you'll improve the sport. So I think Ross coming in is a, is a great thing, um, but I hope that it, it, it's not just in isolation because you know, there are a lot of people who do know what's going on and, and we had a great example at the beginning of this year which I hope people have forgotten about, but the, the qualifying... It, it seems I mean, like a distant a, memory now, actually. It, it does, and, it, <laughs> In and a good it's, way. it's best left as a distant memory. But but it was so sad because when that that was proposed through the the strategy group, and the minute it came to the teams, you know, we looked at it for about fifteen minutes and said, "Okay, well, this is what will happen." You know, it was very obvious. There would be no cars running at the end of each qualifying session. It, it, it you know it didn't take a brain surgeon to to figure it out. And yet, no one listened. So, so what you need is, I'm not advocating that the teams produce the rules, but you need people who have operational acumen, you know, who, who know how you go racing, who know how you exploit rules, who read a set of rules and say, right, this is how we, we get the best out of it. Uh, and Ross is good at that, you know. Ross has been exploiting the rules for as long as I have, so, <laughs> yeah. I hope you enjoyed all of that as much as we did when we were making them. As I said at the beginning, we have loads more recordings to come at the club's wonderful base down at Woodcote Park. I look forward to seeing you all when we go there. Bye-bye for now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.